Hello, one and all. Welcome to the A to the K Wrestling Show, where today we've got what everybody wants, what everybody needs, because joining us is the one and only Al Snow. Al, thanks so much for joining us, man. How are you? Uh, thank you guys very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, what I'd like to do, if we could, is um, we'd uh, like to start off sort of going way back to, um, to when you actually got into the business, which I believe was back in 1982. Um, wow. So you, I believe you wrestled for over a decade on the independent scene, which earned you the nickname the, the best kept secret in wrestling. Um, so first, I'd just like to ask is um, sort of how the sort of journey to the WWF came about and sort of, uh, I suppose, what, how, how, what took so long to get into the sort of public eye into the WWF? Well, I was in the, uh, I, love, I love how uh, people seem to think that nothing else existed besides WWF. <laughs> um, I, I hate to break it to everybody, but there was a wrestling business long before WWF, um, you know, uh, actual vibrant, uh, flourishing, uh, you know, I, I tell the story all the time, like in 1961, uh, Pat O'Connor and, uh, Buddy Rogers drew 43,000 people at Kaminsky Park on a Friday night. So, you know, um, there were huge events and huge audiences that took place long before WrestleMania existed. Um, uh, yeah, I did start in 1982. Um, I wasn't on the independent scene. Uh, I was actually started my career in the territories. Um, right, apologies, yeah. yeah, those were regional offices and, and the, they weren't considered independents at that time. They were considered outlaws if you weren't a part of an association of promoters. If you worked right. for for them, uh, it became the independence uh, because uh, the predominant uh, promotions were really at in the ninety late late eighties early nineties became uh, NWA or World Class Champion or World Championship Wrestling and uh, WWF, um, and then everybody else was basically an independent, meaning that they didn't associate with any other group or or uh, organization of promoters um so that's where the term indie became from or independence came from but independence didn't really develop until probably the really truly the early 90s um yeah, you know yeah, yeah. um i'd say probably 88 89 and then you know going from there from that point on so you know it was uh it's it's the reason i clarify that is because it's it's funny you brought the, you know you were talking about that and the, the to the public eye of WBF. I was in the public eye, but yeah, not on necessarily a national level, but I was in the public eye. And um, I just love the minds or find the mindset fascinating because I was talking to one of the kids in uh, OBW uh, a short time ago. And we were talking about the fact that, you know, I'd been, I don't know, I'd been wrestling for 12 or 14 years before I had gotten signed with WWF. Uh, and uh, he was just like stunned. He's like, "Oh my God, took you that long to to get signed?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah," because you know, I didn't get signed. You just that's what you did. You went and you worked, and and you went from territory to territory. And you know, it just so happened that I finally went to New York to went to WWF. So it's it's interesting. The mindset is now that 
there is no other wrestling that exists other than WWF if you're wanting to be in the public eye. Yeah. And most of the young men and women that get into the wrestling business these days get in with the sole objective of a destination, which is, oh, I've got to make it to WWF or, you know, I didn't succeed. And, and I, I hope for them that they understand that they can still be quite successful and, and have a very wonderful career and, and you know, and uh, without being, you know, signed to WWF or, you know, what's worse is when they get signed to WWF and they get released and they feel like their careers are now over where quite honestly, there, there are numerous examples in recent history you know, that that's far from the case, you know. Drew McIntyre is a great example of that. Yeah. Uh, Cody Rhodes, yeah. you know, Soraya is a great, you know, Paige is a great example yeah. of that. John Moxley, you know, there are lots of people that get signed, released, and then, you know, still have a career, still go on to bigger and better things. So yeah. kind of just you know, a stop uh, for the, as opposed to, yeah. you know, the yeah. And it should be really, because quite honestly, a, a wrestling promotion is nothing more than a platform that allows yeah. the talent to sell their product. And uh, if they use it correctly, if they capitalize on it while they're there, then they, they've just, you know, created actually a career for themselves as opposed to the careers coming to an end once they've been released. So, yeah. you know, I, I started in 1982 and, uh, and I was, um, Worked on the worked in the territories and, and everything started out like everyone primarily started out back then. And that was, you know, uh, working, you know, the opening matches on on uh, live events and basically being a job guy at TV and, um, uh, or, you know, and uh, just working my way through and and uh, earning my way into uh, the wrestling business, into the locker room and then therefore onto the card and uh I've loved it. I've been blessed. I've been getting to do what I love to do for a very long time. And uh, nobody's yet to figure out that I don't have a clue of what I'm doing. So. <laughs> love, love it. Um, so it was around 1995 um, that you actually decided to, to go to Smoky Mountain, um, where obviously you were the, the junior heavyweight champ and also you spent time in the, the tag scene. So you won tag titles with, uh, with who we we came to know as Kane. Um, so just wondering what it was like teaming with with, with Glenn and, and your time in Smoky Mountain. Uh, it was great memories. You know, like what a great opportunity. You know, that opportunity led uh, to meeting Eric Bischoff and, and you know, uh, you know, Eric wanted me to come to Atlanta. The very next week, you know, I went to New York and sat down with Vince McMahon and he offered me a contract. And, you know, um, so I wouldn't have had those those opportunities with either place if it hadn't been for my opportunity with uh smoky mountain wrestling and uh you know i had a great time you know my experience with glenn was was fantastic glenn's such an awesome person and uh uh just you know was a terrific partner it gave us a chance for both of us to to uh step up our game and to learn from two of the best and you know when we were in a program with uh, ricky morton and uh, robert gibson and you know, on a regular basis, you know, four or five nights a week. Yeah. <coughs> I apologize. I got a bit of a sinus thing today. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it uh, was just really just honestly a wonderful uh, experience all the way around um, being involved in Smoky Mountain at that time. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome, man. 
Um, so obviously both you and Kane would uh, go on to to be noticed by the WWF, and um, you would actually go on to to debut as as Avatar, which um, I believe kind of fed into the sort of sort of Power Rangers popularity at the time. Uh, yeah. So I just sort of wanted to ask is um, sort of whose idea that gimmick was, and and what your thoughts were on on the sort of gimmick and the, the character of Avatar. Well, it was Vince McMahon's idea. I think he really wanted to capitalize, like you said, on the Power Rangers and the Mortal Kombat craze yeah. that was going on. I know he had, uh, he had at that time, you know, was when we had a conversation about it, was telling me about how uh, New York City uh, um, Radio Music Hall, New York City's Radio Music Hall, they had uh, Mortal Kombat had sold out like three weeks in a row or something like that. You know, and uh, that was kind of unheard of at the time. And so he was really hoping, because I know he had tried, you know, that was why he had tried to utilize uh, Pete, Pete Polacco, uh, uh, just incredible as uh, uh, Aldo Montoya in that outfit. I know he had, uh, you know, he had used Quang, uh, Savio Vega. Um, so he was trying um, to, you know, catch something and, and, you know, uh, capitalize on that craze at the moment at the time and uh yeah. you know if i knew then what i know now i'm sure i could have done uh, a lot more with the opportunity that i than what i had done um but you know it was uh, uh things were meant to be the way they were meant to be i made mistakes um and uh didn't fully uh take advantage of the opportunity that was presented to me it was a bit of a challenge. I mean, you know, uh, with a very unique thing of not wearing the mask out, putting the mask on and then wearing it. But now when I look back, you know, there are a lot of things and ways that I could have done that uh, differently yeah. than what I had actually done. So yeah. mm. I think as well, what was fascinating, we also saw um, very briefly you as a Shinobi, which we know that you'd use prior to joining the WWF at the time. Was there ever, yeah. you know, you talk about ninjas and Mortal Kombat stuff was, was that the next plan was to push kind of Shinobi as a character or was that always intended to be kind of a one-off? You know, I don't really know. Um, I was never privy uh, with that conversation. Um, I know, I do know that the, the last time that I used Shinobi, uh, which was an idea that they had with uh, when coach was doing an angle and they wanted me to uh, work with Tajiri, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the writers were insistent upon me, uh, unmasking after the match and I kept debating with them. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's, it, it you know, uh, why would I, you know, you unmask me that doesn't do anything. And, uh, they, uh, they, you know, kept press, pressing him for it. And I was like, well, okay, I'll do it. And the very next day, you know, Vince walked up to me and he goes, oh, you know, oh, wow, pal, that was, that was the best match I've ever seen you have. And, you know, why haven't we done that gimmick before? And I said, we have, and he didn't remember. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he said, oh, it's just a shame you, you know, you took the mask off. And I was like, I told the writers that I shouldn't take the mask off, you know? Um, no. and he, you know, but it was, I should have stood my ground and I shouldn't have taken the mask off. And that was my mistake again, too, was, you know, just going along and being agreeable and um and not not resisting that idea yeah uh, so obviously after the the well avatar and shinobi you um you went on to, to become one half of the of the new rockers with uh, marty Janetti as uh, steve cassidy 
Um, so I just wondered what it was like working with Marty and, and sort of what Sean's reaction was to, to bring her back to the Rockers. Well, Sean didn't, you know, I don't think he had any issue with it. In fact, I think Sean was supporting the idea, you know, to give uh, Marty another opportunity and, yeah, of course, and yeah. myself. And, uh, you know, Marty was great. I mean, I've said in numerous interviews that I think that Marty was is truly underappreciated and undervalued as far as his talent. Um, you know, everybody, oh, I don't want to be the Marty Gennetti of the team. Listen, I would love to be the Marty Gennetti of the team. Marty was very, very adept. was very, very good. And actually uh, was very instrumental in teaching Sean a lot of what you see Sean do, you know, in the ring. Um, you know, the fact that there's this bias that's created by this misperception by people that have never done it is sad, uh, you know, and that he doesn't get the respect or the appreciation that he really truly deserves. Yeah. It is, uh, yeah. It's just too bad, you know. If you really go back and you watch Marty Jannetty and you watch the Rockers, you can see that he's every bit as much, if not more, of a performer than Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose, as you say, that's the, the problem with um, like the fan base. Obviously, they get to see the on-screen characters, they get to see Sean become the breakout star, but maybe you don't see the behind the scenes or the mechanics of it all quite the same way, you know? Yeah, some people are uh, are more, and this, this isn't a knock, this is actually, it's just part of part and parcel of course, it, yeah. is, is that, uh, you know, some people are more adept at the backstage things than, you know, or just as adept at the backstage workings as they are out in front of the camera and you know some are really good out in front of the camera and aren't very good at the backstage maneuverings yeah. as much you know which yeah. you have to be you have to be adept at both yeah yeah absolutely um i think something obviously we saw on um, on your instagram i think you actually put this caption but something nobody had on their 2022 bingo card was the return of leaf cassidy um what was it like reprising, <laughs> reprising that character this year uh, it was fun you know it was it was a uh, just a gimmick that was done uh you know as a uh, because marty could not make it because he had surgery done on his ankle and they called me at the last minute and you know, pitched the idea. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't mind. You know, in fact, again, I'm going to work twice this weekend in matches as, as Leaf Cassidy again. That's so, That's awesome. You know, yeah. it's all just a gimmick. So oh, you know, who cares? I mean, it's just, it's fun. It's fun to do. And if people want to pay to see it, then so much the better. I'll, I'll oh, yeah. do it. Love it. So, <laughs> if people want to pay see Avatar again, I would go and do that. But, you know, <laughs> That's fair. Um, so obviously it was around, I believe, 96, around the time of the New Rockers, um, that uh, Wrestling Observer named you the most underrated for that year. Um, what was your reaction to, to that? Oh, well, you know, anytime you you get some kind of, uh, you know, positive feedback, it's a compliment. But I so, yeah, so what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I, you know I, so I got an award from a newsletter and, I, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm very appreciative. I mean, that that means that the fans took notice and and liked what I was doing, and 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 that's very um, very nice. Uh, but ultimately, I I got into the wrestling business to uh, make a living and to pursue a career. And um, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> I hate to say it, but you know, as much as, as pleasant as it is to do those things, getting the most underrated wrestler of the year or a five-star match 
when I get a bill from my local utility company and uh, I call them up and I go, hey guys, look, <laughs> I, can't, I can't pay my electric bill this month, but I did have a five-star match. And they're going to go, what? You got a five-star <laughs> match? You know what? We'll let it slide, okay? Don't worry about this month. Just call us up and let us know next month how you're doing, you know. And uh, you know, or if I go in the grocery store and I'm self checkout, I just put up I'm the most underrated wrestler of the year. Don't bother. <laughs> your, your money's no good here, you know. You know, no, it's, it's and, I, and the reason I the reason I say that is not again to discount the the compliment. Um, you know, it's very pleasant uh, compliment, but I think that too many performers. Uh, these days are more focused on getting those types of things than they are being an actual attraction and drawing the interest of the fans and drawing money. Now, I'll take your point. It could be a distraction. And we kind of try to, not like you say, that five-star match or that underrated wrestler sort of uh, credit. Yeah, ultimately, it's, uh, it's, yeah, you know, it are they going to pay to see you? <laughs> correct, because that takes the focus off of your real objective, which is, mm. is to motivate an audience. You know, um, you know, a, a wrestler is in competition for the most valuable resource on the face of the planet right now. Um, it's worth more than anything else. It's worth more than gold. It's worth more than diamonds. And that's your attention. And companies and corporations and, you know, politicians will spend millions upon millions on millions of dollars to get it for even just 10 seconds. Yeah. So you've got to be aware that that's ultimately what you're really out there trying to do is to capture someone's attention and capture it in such a manner that they're going to now be motivated to want to pay to see you again. And also, yeah. you know, part, you know, be motivated to buy your merchandise and, you know, license products and, and which is going to give you opportunities to just do that again and again, if you're successful at it. And you've got to be keenly aware that that is what you're doing. Not, it's not about getting critical acclaim. It's nice. It's very pleasant. But yeah. if you can't maintain an audience's attention, you can get all the critical acclaim you want. And it's not going yeah. to achieve anything. Harder than ever today as well with the tension spans the way they are. But um, <laughs> where, you, where you obviously... I don't buy that either. I don't buy that, I don't buy that myth either. I think the attention span thing is complete and utter bullshit. I think, okay, that that is, I, I think it's a crock of shit. You know why I think it's a crock of shit? Well, yeah, tell me some of the most some of the most successful television shows that are that have been airing television wise or streaming. Okay, Game of Thrones, uh, Walking Dead, uh, Stranger uh, Things, Break, Stranger Things, Breaking Bad. Tell me, you cannot. You have to pay attention to each and every episode. Yeah, that's right. And that it. it I think the attention span is a crock of shit and it's an excuse for lazy participation. That's yeah, all it is. It's probably more like yeah, a, it's, it's probably easier distractions today, isn't there? Is you, you're trying to watch the TV and then you've got your phone or you've got... <laughs> well, yeah, but it, let's be honest. If you're watching one of those shows and it's a really good show, you don't you don't pay attention to it. Uh, no, it's, it's a fair point. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the difference, you know? But yeah. then it's easy for you to fall back and say, Oh, well, you know, the attention span, because it's easy to insult your audience's intelligence than it is to take uh, responsibility for your lack of uh, generating something that's going to keep their interest. 
Yeah, that's a really good take, yeah, actually. Yeah, fair, yeah. fair play. Um, but something you actually, you know, definitely did in 1997 was capture people's attention when you uh, created the Al Snow persona. And it's, um, you know, something which I don't think, you know, there's many been able to replicate the, the success of that to this day. It was so, you know, intriguing to see that character with head and, and all, all that kind of thing with the help we written backwards on the forehead. How did you kind of pull all that together into the package that became Al Snow? I just... Uh... At the time, I was, you know, you know, I was very frustrated because I had been wrestling for, you know, I had a long career at that point, very significant, and I'd had success, you know, maybe not in the terms of the way people term it now, because I think a lot of people mistake fame for success, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I've always done well. I've been there are times I've made less money, and there've been times I've made more money, but I've always done well, and I've been able to to do this and nothing else for you know, 40 years now. So I think in that sense, I think I've been, I've done okay. Um, And, you know, I had just came off of a really strong run in Smoky Mountain, came to WWF and was, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, I can attest that this was because I didn't have a definable, describable persona in the ring, Um, you know, and, and, and they were trying to find it. And, uh, you know, um, and I made the mistake of doing what a lot of people do, and that is pointing the finger at everyone else and not at myself. And uh, I realized once I started pointing the finger at myself that uh, I was the only one that I could control. And then I was the only one that could uh, change it, that could make a difference. So I said about, you know, I tried to quit because uh, I had a contract for two years at that time. And they, I literally I know that they had a, I failed to realize that they had a uh, uh, extension that they could they could you know hold me over for another year. So I'd sent in my release and you know request for a release, and um, they turned it down and uh, rolled me over. And just fortunate for me, um, I was friends with you know Chris Candido, who was at the time was kind of Paul Hammond's right hand man, and. Chris came to TV. We had a conversation. He went to Paul. Paul went to Bruce, who was in charge of talent relations at the time. And then I was put on loan in in ECW. And I went there specifically with the idea that I was going to make myself a star to where either Paul would pay to keep me, Eric would pay to steal me, or WWF Vince would pay to bring me back. And um, I totally went there with that idea in mind. And um, the, the thing that happened was is that i created a describable definable character someone that you could relate to and someone that you could believe in and the reason that you could believe in it was because all of that frustration all of that anger that i had felt all that resentment i channeled through the head you know i talked to it and you know made remarks and comments and and in it felt and seemed and people believed that it was real and um, so much so that you know, if you'd have at that time had done a poll, nine out of 10 people, they would have sworn that, you know, nine out of 10 people would have sworn I was completely insane. So, <laughs> you know, uh, which is good. Um, you know, that's, that's the key to success is that, you know, an audience has to believe in who you are. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to have a describable character in order to be a star you've got to your the fans have to be able to turn to their friends and family 
you know, you got to watch a show. There's this guy and he's A, B, C, D, E. If you cannot describe that character in that succinct a fashion, they're, they're not going to be successful. Simple as that. And that was, you know, there were times where I had more success in my career and the more success I had in my career was because of the fact that I was more of a describable, definable character in that ring. Because at the end of the day, um, whether it's, it's pro wrestling or if it's, you name it, soccer, et cetera, go down the list of, of sporting events. Now everyone has realized what we've always realized in professional wrestling. And that is, is that you no longer sell what you do. You sell who you are and why you're doing it. What's at stake? Um, you know, what's the gravity and the consequence of that win and loss? And, you know, without that who, then the gravity and consequence is not as per relatable or as personable. And therefore it doesn't motivate people to want to buy tickets. So, you know, that, that was a very, uh, very uh, significant factor that played in the success uh, that I had in ECW that led me back to WWE. Um, so obviously talking uh, of you coming back to WWE you obviously became uh, synonymous with the hardcore title having the, um, the fourth longest reign as champ um, so I just wondered sort of in terms of sort of how the hardcore division worked at the time and obviously it's something you've tried to recapture since like, how did you find the, the hardcore division and that sort of that sort of style I suppose that fast pace element of it oh it was fine you know I just still still attempting to try to do within the context of what I was in, telling the story every match. And, you know, um, because of the fact that through an accident um, in Worcester, Massachusetts, in the middle of winter, you know, Road Dog and I were having a hardcore match and we ended up going out a fire door and out in the middle of the, outside the building in the middle of a, you know, a snowstorm. And, uh, you know, every match after that, they were always like, you know, always wanted me to find some way to go outside of the building or go somewhere else. <laughs> and so, you know, that, uh, you know, ended up with in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Bossman and I having a bar fight across the street, you know, um, literally fighting across the public street in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, Bob, and I, Bob Holly and I ended up in the Mississippi River, you know, uh, Memphis, um, a lot of interesting places, you know, so. And I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was, uh, it's a great run. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was very grateful for the opportunity and uh, it allowed me to carve out a unique uh, niche uh, in the car, on the card and in the show um, because, you know, it allowed me to be different and not to be like every other match on the show, you know, or yeah, not exactly. to be like every other character on the show. And that's what you really are attempt, you know, wanting to do is to stand out, uh, you know, on a show where everyone on the show is trying to stand out. You know, that becomes yeah. quite a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, yeah. speaking of uh, so speaking I, of standing out, <laughs> I was going to say one of the one of the things from that around about that time was you actually had a match against yourself, uh, which is perfectly yeah. fitting for your character. And obviously, like we've seen it in other companies and stuff, and they're like you know fighting invisible men or like putting like a grenade down the pants and stuff like that. But for its time, you know, this was something that was completely. Well, I think super I unique. think what I, I what I did was different mm -hmm. than the things that you're talking about the grenade. Yeah. And, the invisible man and you know things mm -hmm. like that 
because you have to understand for the audience, you know, uh, me wrestling myself or me wrestling the head matched my psychosis. Yeah, yeah it made sense. You, when, when somebody does these things and just does them out of context to basically make it a joke of mm-hmm. what, what it is we're trying to sell to an audience, uh, I think that's detrimental. Um, and, I, you know, and people are going to say, well, you did it, you know. Um, but again, I did it within the context of the character. Yeah, you know, yeah. that for an audience that had seen me week in, week out, uh, and that was, that was, you know, everybody goes, oh, I was a comedy wrestler. I was not a comedy wrestler. There's no such thing as a comedy wrestler. I was entertaining, mm-hmm. but I was insane, and which allowed me to do the ridiculous that for anyone else wouldn't have made any sense. But for an audience to watch me do it, they completely seemed justifiable because I was out of my mind. So, you know, there's a, within context, there's a, there's a really big difference between just going out there to entertain yourself or the boys in the back and making a joke of things or going out there and doing something that for an audience, they go, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. He's completely a loon, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously being two, two Brits, uh, we hold a bit of a soft spot for the, for the European Championship. Um, which you won from Perry Satin on an episode of SmackDown. Uh, so yeah. just wondered sort of your thoughts on sort of how you felt about winning the title and, and your thoughts on the European title scene. Well, I did, you know, uh, again, it, when you win a title, one for let's clear a couple things up. One, yeah, of course. It's a, it's a gimmick. I mean, it's a prop, mm. you know, yeah. but at the same time, it's not just a gimmick and a prop to a wrestler because it's a sign that they're entrusting that you a, a responsibility, which means if they're going to give you a title, they're expecting that you're going to be able to draw with it. Mm. So, you know, um, so that's why I was given the title. And, and then and that's, that's a sign of respect, you know, and, um, you know, I, uh, um, first when they came to me with the idea of going out, cause I was, I recorded a bunch of, you know, what does everybody want? What does everybody need? What does everybody love? And all these different languages, you know, um, and, uh, you know, they were, you know, I was pitched the idea of, you know, you come out representing different countries in Europe and I'm like, okay, you know, and, and, and to be honest, the very first time I went out, I've, I felt like a, a complete ass, you know, but then I thought, you know what, if I'm going to be, you know, this is going to be ridiculous, well, then I'm going to make it as ridiculous as possible. And um, what's always surprised me is the number of people over the years since who have came up to me uh, and inevitably talk about you know, tough enough, or they talk about the head, or they talk about the European run and how much they enjoyed it and how entertained they were by it and how much fun they had watching it and how they wanted it to go longer, you know? Um, and I, I can't, you know, can't tell, it always surprises me just how many people talk about that. So, yeah. you know, I made an impression and, and, uh, with the run and, and had a great time. And, uh, you know, like I said, you know, they were like, well, you know, you're going to come out and do all this, you know, wear the, the outfit from, I think the first one was Germany and I had to go out with Lederhosen and the sausages <laughs> around my neck and a picture of David Hasselhoff. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And then I thought, you know what? Okay, screw it. You're good. You want me to be, you know, want to make, make a fool of me? Well, then I'm going to take control and I'm going to make myself, 
as big a fool as possible. And it 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 made an impression. You know, people enjoyed yeah. it. It definitely did. I think, you know, another one that made a massive impression on me was um, was Head Cheese. Obviously, you and Steve Blackman, um, that kind oh, of yeah. What was it like um, working with Steve? I, you know, I love the kind of the, the classic odd couple thing of that, where he just wasn't having any of it, but you'd look you know, like you're in the time of your life. How was it working with Steve and doing that kind of tag? Oh, Steve was, Steve was awesome. Steve was such a great guy, such a wonderful person. You know, and it worked so great because he was such a great straight man because, yeah. you know... I would do things, you know, and that's what, again, what really comes across and what really connects is what's real. And I would purposely try to drive him nuts, you know, and come up with things that would push his buttons and, you know, watch him get frustrated, uh, you know, at my antics. And uh, that, that, that came across, you know, on TV and uh, we were the vignettes and things that we did. Um, you know, on SmackDown, they turned out to be the highest rated, uh, some of the highest rated segments on the show at that time. You know, the viewership would go up whenever we would come on with those little vignettes. So, yeah. um, you know, we, it was, it was, it was, again, nothing negative, just always positive. He just, he was, he was, you know, uh, just a great guy, great guy to work with, you know. Um, you know, we had our own comedy show. We had our own entertaining show, uh, but it was broke up in three or four vignettes through across two hours. You know, yeah. And uh, you know, we had it, it was blast. People, yeah. And people really enjoyed us as a team. I think I really, yeah, I loved it. It, it was great. Yeah, no, it's definitely one of the ones that stuck with us. Yeah, yeah. I know there was talk about us having to run with the tag titles for uh, you know a short time, but you know. Politics being what it is, you know, it didn't mm. work out. Okay. So um, there was obviously um, eventually a bit of controversy around around head, um, and obviously supposedly depicting violence against women. Uh, to oh, the point yeah. the supermarkets were removing action figures, and eventually they, they sort of removed head uh, from the gimmick. So I just wanted to sort of sort of ask how. Well, I've, I've always been a, I've been always been ahead of the curve. Um, I was getting canceled before cancel culture was a thing. <laughs> um, you know, it's so funny because like there are, you know, two women who were of all things, they were professors of, a, of communications at a college in Georgia. So let's, let's put this in perspective. Two women yeah, that were professors of, of communications at a college in Georgia. Communications. <laughs> so they, if anybody should have known, hey, before we espouse our opinion in a public forum, Maybe we should do a little bit of homework and some research and find out what it is we're really talking about. Nah, why would you do that? Let's just do what we always do as a society around the world, and that's jump to conclusions and presumptions, and then you know stomp around and make make it seem like we really know what we're talking about. So they uh, they wrote a letter to the Atlanta Constitution after they had seen my action figure on the shelves in Walmart here in the United States and uh, proclaimed. Uh, and I quote that the, my action figure was a training manual for future spousal abusers. So imagine, you know, you're, you're, I don't know how old you are right now, but back in the day, you bought my action figure as a child and, um, you know, you're, you've had a hard day at work and you come home and your wife makes, you know, macaroni and cheese again. And you're like, God, Damn it, Carol, I've had enough of that. And you just start slapping her going, now Snow's action figure was right. He taught me the way to handle women. 
And that's absurd. I mean, if you oh, are, be- if you're beating your wife, my action figure is not the problem. Maybe it's your parents and how they raised you. That's probably the problem. So, you know, it just was ridiculous, but I mean, it, it made me a national and international news event for about a week and a half. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, we just didn't capitalize on it uh, at the time, which I think we could have really done, um, yeah. you know, if we really wanted to. But yeah. still ridiculous. It's absurd. You know, it's yeah. just as crazy to draw conclusions based on just, <laughs> she said. Like say, it's, it's clearly <laughs> it was, context, it, was, you know, any... it was social media before there was social media. Yeah. Yeah. They just had to write an actual handwritten letter and then get the get the get the newspaper to publish it. And then everybody freaked out and, you know, panicked and took them off the shelf. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, as a result of that, heads obviously ended up getting replaced by the lovable Chihuahua uh, Pepper, which um, I think a lot of people. I I don't know if that was around the same time or not. No, I don't was, was, was it not kind of um, like literally I don't know. a couple of I don't know. months after? Not, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. No? Not sure. Um, I would, well, and that would just so you guys know, that wasn't the only controversy that I had. Um, uh, there was a college where we ran a show as in ECW. Uh, and I, there was a promo photo of me with the head in front of me. And I was holding the base of the head, you know. Yeah. Uh, like this in front of my chest so that you could get the photo and a women's group uh, picketed the show saying that I my <laughs> my picture on the poster was uh, portraying violence against women uh, and you know and again ahead of the curve if anyone ever actually were to pay attention you'd notice that I always refer to head as they them us we because mm-hmm. head uh had multiple personalities so you would not yeah. ever refer to one of them you'd have to refer to all of them and uh i never treated head as anything but androgynous you know and uh but they just assumed that you know i was and then of course because i was holding the base it looked like i was choking the head which incites violence against one which is absurd so. Well, again, it's um, I suppose a reaction to an image rather than knowing anything about the the character that they've seen on or that we've seen on TV. Well, we don't um, we don't have to do that, you know. We can yeah. just jump to conclusions, <laughs> and then exactly. we can who needs context. <laughs> we can put our opinions out there in the public forum because it, it triggered us, it offended us. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well. Um, so in, te- in terms of Pepper, so, um, you know, I'm not too sure in terms of the timelines, but something that um, some of our kind of uh, followers wanted, wanted us to ask you was, how does it feel, obviously, with the big boss man kind of thing, where ultimately boss man ended up, you know, feeding Pepper to you and stuff like that. It still look, look back on as one of the kind of most memorable moments from the Attitude Era. Was that something you guys knew would be the case or was it just kind of a throwaway segment that you just thought wouldn't gain traction? Uh, no, I mean... Um, you know, just uh, back to what you were originally talking about, the timeline with the head and Pepper to replace mm-hmm. head. It wasn't that. It meant when Russo came to me and with the idea, the whole idea, uh, mm-hmm. he approached me um, because he had been inspired by watching the Son of Sam movie and the killer in the movie had, uh, you know, thought that the dog, uh, Chihuahua, was speaking to him, telling him to kill people. And, you know, that was the idea, was that oh, I would, would be speaking to Pepper like I did the head. And if I uh, truly was 
uh, schizophrenic with a transference disorder, then it would, the head just represents whatever I'm hearing the voices. So the dog, Pierre, the deer head, yeah, you know, yeah. all of those things would, you know, a mop bucket, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a stick, you know, anything could be, a lamp could be um, the next thing that I fixate on, you know, and, you know, he, they laid it all out, you know, the, he didn't, you know, it wasn't until we got to near the, uh, the actual vignettes that we filmed where, you know, Bossman fed me the dog, which that was inspired by apparently a story, Mr. Mr. Fuji, who had a neighbor who had a dog that he hated because it barked all the time. Uh, when the neighbor went to the work, he kidnapped the dog and apparently killed the dog and, and then invited the neighbor over for dinner and fed him his own dog. So um, that inspired that uh, incident with Bossman and I. So. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I say memorable. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so obviously you've been uh, you've been training other wrestlers for, for decades now. I believe it was '95 uh, you were first operating um, body slammers in Ohio. Um, so I just want to ask: Did you always know that you sort of wanted to sort of get involved in the in the training side of things? Uh, well, I didn't always know. Mm. Um, you know, I just kind of knew that you know it was kind of another situation where I just took the bull by the horns and. You know, I knew that I, if I wanted to get anywhere, I had to just do it myself type of thing. And, you know, at first, I think training the other wrestlers was a, uh, was a means to an end. Um, and, uh, and then, but it, then it became as years went by, uh, and more and more that I trained, uh, and developed were successful, um, I kind of realized that that was probably going to be be really my real legacy in the business is the number of young men and women that I've, you know, brought up and have, you know, helped to go on to any kind of success within the rest of the business. Yeah. One of the names so, um, that, that got brought up that we weren't aware of, is it true that you, you had um, a part in training Dan Seven? And if so, how was his, how was he obviously transitioned from MMA to, to the pro wrestling world? Uh, Dan, Dan, uh, training Dan was interesting. Um, a lot of, you know, uh, every type of fighting and professional wrestling is really a, is a style of fighting. It's, it's catch wrestling is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's the precursor to modern day MMA is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's been kind of bastardized and, and changed up over the years, but ultimately mm -hmm. that's really what it is. Catch wrestling is where you catch a hold and you're allowed to do submissions and things like that, along with pinballs. And uh, usually when you get a, a person who's so ingrained um, in amateur wrestling um, or that style of footwork, timing and distance, it's, it's tough for them to adapt because the only, only thing that is not real in professional wrestling, and I've, I've said this on numerous interviews, the only thing that is not real, the only thing that we're trying to convince you of uh, is, is the outcome, is the finish, mm -hmm. our intent behind everything we do. Everything we do is physically quite real. It's just yeah. the intent behind it. We're not doing it to per se, 
uh, win. We're doing it to per se portray the idea that we're trying to win. And, and when we're having something done to us, we're trying to portray the idea that if we have it done to us again, we might, might cause us to lose. Um, that's, that's all doing. And that's all you're really, you know, besides who we are, that's what you're really wanting to believe in is, is our intent. So it's hard uh, when they, they, they've got it so ingrained in them to um, shift those gears from actual intent of performing the moves to try to win, to trying to just sell the idea that they're doing that. And it, it's a tough transition for a lot of them. Uh, Dan did better than most, but I knew that at the time there was a company that had opened up in Japan, it was UWFI, that was enjoying an incredible amount of success. And I knew that Dan was tailor-made for the company, and I knew that he would have, you know, have a real good chance to have a real strong run there um, with his background and everything. And, and he did go over and, and did do well. Um, he didn't become the star that I thought he could because he still hadn't quite even in that, you still had to sell the intent. Um, yeah. But, you know, then he wanted to pursue uh, the UFC, which was a completely different animal back then. It had only just begun. I think it was UFC one and two, and he was trying to get into three and failed. And uh, a wonderful woman that, you know, was kind of like a manager for a lot of us, uh, and a, a den mother, uh, Phyllis Lee, um, was able to, to get Dan in UFC four. And then, you know, I worked with Dan and trained him and prepared him, which, I mean, we didn't know what we were doing and what we were getting into because yeah, it's not like it is now, you know, back then every fighter fought a unique style, you know, if Dan wrestled, you know, and you had to, you had to fight three fights in a row. And, you know, the first fight he fought was a Muay Thai guy. The second guy who fought was a long style karate. And the third guy was jujitsu, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so not everybody, you know, the, the Muay Thai guy didn't have a ground game. You know, you might be against a Kung Fu guy. You might be against a sumo guy. You might be against a boxer. Every, you know, it was literally what style is the best style of fighting. And yeah. uh, whereas now, you know, MMA has become its own style. You know, you've got both stand-up ground game. They've got, you know, they've got strengths and weaknesses, but they both are, they're adept at pretty much all around. We're back then. And you know you're fighting an individual fighter that you can, you know, watch tapes on and research and get background and see their strengths and their weaknesses. We didn't have, we didn't know who we were, who he was fighting when we showed up. We didn't know, you know, if he was going to fight once, three times. We didn't know nothing. And it was what an experience it was, that's for sure. <laughs> Can I imagine this? Uh, so you were you were heavily involved in in Tough Enough, I believe you mentioned it sort of briefly before. Um, so I just wanted to be, sort of talk a little bit on sort of how that concept came about and, and what your thoughts were on the show, really. Well, Tough Enough is probably one of the one of the things I'll be you know very very proud of in my mm. career. Um, and, you know, my time on there and, and, and the people that I helped and, you know, um, you know, I think it'll be, you know, it's, and it was during a time when, you know, um, reality television wasn't as prevalent, wasn't, you know, we only had in the United States, we had Survivor and we had, uh, you know, uh, real world on MTV. That was it. Yeah. And we were the very first reality television show that kind of combine the two elements together of 
taking the competition of survivor and the real world where pe young people lived in the house and then they now have to compete for you know to achieve a dream or a goal and um um you know it was uh, it was what a marvelous and amazing experience it was um all the way around i mean i just one of the great great times of my career really was and as far as exposure and as far as rec recognition and recognizability i mean i couldn't have wanted something more or better than what i had yeah. gotten on mtv at that period of time yeah it's got very fond memories of that show i remember watching all the kind of seasons so yeah absolutely loved it um you spent a lot of time over here in the uk um i think you, you even opened up a wrestling school over here at, um as well as one point. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the UK, UK wrestling fans compared to all the other places you've wrestled. Uh, well, you know, I love the UK. Uh, I have been over there a lot. <coughs> and I still have the uh, Al Snow Wrestling Academy in the Midlands and just outside of London and Surrey. Um, you know, the, um, there were a couple more, but they, you know, with COVID and everything, they, yeah, didn't survive. Sure. yeah. um, but, uh, and then, you have, you know, one still in Romania, um, a couple in, in Chile, um, and, um, you know, the, uh, um, I, I love the UK fans. I mean, they, man, I'll tell you, they, they're some of the most, uh, uh, boisterous and vocal <laughs> and probably outside of Philadelphia's ECW arena, I can't imagine a, a more fun crowd, more fun audience to perform in front of than the, the UK fans. Seriously. That's all a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so obviously you're now um, operating OVW. Um, so uh, first thing I just want to ask, is there, is there still a connection between OVW and WWE today? And um, secondly, is there's, no direct, there's yeah. no direct connection between OVW and WWE, no. There is no direct connection. Um, there hasn't been for quite some time. But, you know, still kind of connected, you know, in so far as the fact that I'm there, I operate it, I oversee everything. They, they always take an interest in what their former superstars are doing and of course you know uh you know it's it's you know it's a, it's the track record of ovw speaks for itself and of course you know, yeah. uh, a large part of that track record was when i was there with uh the developmental and both with wwe and impact and so my track record of of, of people that i have trained that have went on to become stars in the wrestling business speaks for itself as well yeah definitely Absolutely. Um, obviously, you've trained a lot of wrestlers, so you know over your time. What um, is there any former students that you would say that you were like the most proud of that you've had the privilege to train? And is there any kind of of the current crop that you're um, really excited for people to to get to see more of? Well, sure, there are, but I I don't want to mention names because well, here's what's going to happen. I'm proud of them all. Um, yeah. I sincerely am. But if I mention or point out or pick a name or two or or you know or ones of the current roster, and I don't mention somebody else, then it's going to be yeah, like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, what, I suck, what's going on? You know, uh, yeah. you know it's, uh, wrestlers are notoriously insecure 
And, <laughs> and, you know, even though I'm probably would have, you know, if you spoke to me on another day, I'd have probably mentioned their name and not the one that I mentioned. And so to avoid all of that, let's yes. just say that, you know, I think again, you know, uh, I really, uh, am proud of all of my kids that I have been involved with and taught and developed to any degree. And, um, you know, if I didn't have faith and belief in the current roster, then I certainly wouldn't have bought like a lunatic, bought the company in 2018 and still be with it today, beating my head against the wall, you know? So. Yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> um, so one thing I'd like to ask is, um, do you watch much of the, the current product today? And if so, I, is there I any don't. Way- I don't, I really, I don't get much of an opportunity to because I'm so course, heavily yeah. involved with OBW. Like, you know, I, I would explain that to a lot of people years ago that, you know, this man doesn't see you, doesn't know about you until you are in his ring. Cause mm-hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't watch anything else because his sole focus is what he's doing, not what anybody else is doing. Yeah. And that, you know, it's not because he doesn't like it or he doesn't, you know, enjoy watching it. It's because, you know, that's what it should be. You know, what should be is his sole focus is what he does. Well, that's kind of what it's become Mm. for me, you know, you know, I don't really get much of a chance to uh, watch just because of uh, time constraints and Mm -hmm. the amount of responsibility and et cetera, that it takes um, to run even a uh, wrestling promotion on this level, a weekly ongoing um, concern, uh, you know, uh, yeah. takes a lot. I mean, just for instance, yeah. today, you know, I've been working throughout the day. I'm uh, going, once we finish this interview, I'm going to go to the arena. I've got to film a pre-tape for tomorrow night's TV. Last week, uh, Monday night, I filmed uh, four vignettes of uh, two wrestlers that were on a date, a referee and a wrestler, a female wrestler were on a date um, uh, for TV. Yesterday, uh, talent weren't available, but I was supposed to film more pre-tapes that were for tomorrow. That's all the work during the day, all of, and then all of that filming that I have to do Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and then tomorrow will be a 12 to 14 hour day of producing two hours of live television, you know, and then yeah, it's absolutely insane. I mean, it, it leads, it leads me on to my next question. I actually had here in my notes is that we know you're just one of the busiest people in wrestling. So taking all that, you've just said you've got so many other, you know, different endeavors you're involved in. So we wanted to just touch on a couple of them briefly. So firstly, collar and elbow. Um, so you yeah. kind of got your own wrestling apparel uh, brand. How did the, how did that come about? Uh, my partner, uh, Rod Hicks approached me, um, several years ago and you know had this idea which was and at that time there were wasn't a lot of there was what was happening was that a lot of the wrestling merchandise or t-shirts were you know they were uncomfortable gildan heavy bulletproof shirts and then they usually had like a guy's face plastered all over it you know what i mean It, it was they weren't very cool um, they didn't really say, you know, and, you know, if I'm a guy, I don't want another guy's face on my chest. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, or even just a picture of him doing some wrestling move or something. You know, I don't, I don't want it. So we talked about the fact that we wanted to come up with designs that uh, on shirts that were comfortable and that, like, you went out of your way to wear them because you liked them, the way they felt and the way they fit. And that, you know, we wanted designs that just were cool. And if you weren't a wrestling fan, you might just look at the design on the shirt and be like, oh, that's cool. I like that. But if you were a wrestling fan, there was something on it in the design that spoke to you that if another wrestling fan saw it, they knew it was a wrestling shirt. But if you if you wore it out and another a non-wrestling fan saw it, then you didn't have to deal with, oh, oh you're a wrestling fan. You know that was fake, right? And you're like, hey, congratulations, murder she wrote. How long did it take you to put the clues together, Angela Lansbury? You know, <laughs> incredible detective work that you've put, you know, you've, you've ascertained something that everyone's known for decades. Yeah. Your skills of deduction are amazing, jackass. <laughs> you know, like, you know, magic's not real too, you turd. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of, you know, but if you wear a shirt that, speaks to another wrestling fan but it's just a cool design and other people just think it's a cool design that's what we were trying to endeavor to do and um so you know that i was i thought that was a really cool idea and and i thought it was a it was a great way to to go about it you know so yeah uh, so another one we, we'd like to mention is uh, you have your own comic book series, The Adventures of yes. Al Snow and Head. Um, so I'm going to ask how, how that came about and, and what it's like to have your own comic. Well, it's freaking awesome just to have my own comic. <laughs> That's what it, that yeah. is what it's like. <clears throat> um, Eric Watkins with Broken Icon Comics approached me about wanting to do a comic book, you know, and the concept for the story um, is is was I, I it's great because again it lends itself to uh the character in wrestling these these comics i know that there have been comics out and they're very wrestling centric in the mm-hmm. sense that it all takes part in a round arena or it takes part in a ring or you know all of that these are not anything like that like the first one which was a uh a 40 page uh book um the adventure the ballad of al snow and ed um that one is a story where it takes place in a post-apocalyptic world and where i believe that i'm a uh i run a detective agency i had and i do and uh over here that a uh, barmaid um has lost her heart meaning she fell in love but i think somebody stole her heart like legitimately <laughs> and so i go set about wanting to solve the case in this post-apocalyptic world and get their heart back for her. Um, in the adventures of Al Snow and Ed, um, it's the, the ballad is, is one. So like the first ballad is a post-apocalyptic world. The second one is where um, I think that I'm a secret service agent and I'm trying to infiltrate the uh, enemy to the north, which is Canada. So <laughs> I'm uh, sneaking into Canada and trying to thwart uh, any, uh, you know, an evil empire um and uh and the great thing is that that all of these can take place because they all take place here in my adult brain and you know (laughs) that's real 
the adventures of Alan Stonehead are kind of like the old Marvel team up books yeah. where I'll team up with different wrestling superstars. So like um, we've already had one issue out that was with Chavo Guerrero Jr. Mm-hmm. It was in a, it's an old West adventure. Um, and, you know, Chavo's riding Pepe the stick horse, um, you know, in the adventure. And, uh, and I'm, of course, I have had and Pepper is in there and so is Pierre. And, um, and they're all very true to the wrestling characters. They're just in different settings. So uh, this one that's out right now on BrokenIconComics.com, there's a Kickstarter for um, Adventures of Al Snow and Head with uh, Big Brother fame, Jesse Goddard. And it's set back like in the 30s and 40s in a carnival. Uh, old carnival days and I introduce uh, an army of little people that are all dressed like former gimmicks of mine that are all at my command and I have them attack people at random Um, and then the next one is a team up with Tommy Dreamer that is set back in like the prohibition days with gangsters and Al Capone and all of that it's a little darker and then there's one with Scotty Tuhati where it's a little more uh, modern, uh, like uh, we're both assassins, and that one's really uh, it's like John Wick, and you know, uh, uh, meets you know, uh, the Matrix type of thing. It's pretty cool that story. Um, you know, uh, we've got one with Ricky Steamboat that's going to come out that's set like the Game of Thrones because he's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So, nice. you know, <laughs> you know, so there are all these different worlds. And, you know, it, they're all very true to who the characters really are. Um, and they're still the wrestling characters. They're just, they're not about just a wrestling thing. And I really was flattered and impressed with and amazed with like big name talent uh, in the comic book business are working on these books. Amazing. I mean, just amazing artists. And if you get, if you get like the ballad and you get like the adventures of Al Snow and Head with Chavo and then the one with Jesse Goddard, all of the artwork's incredible, but it all has its own unique style that fits for that particular story. So yeah. it's really, they're really cool. I mean, I'm really, really flattered and really think that they're, and they're, they're all self-contained stories. You know, it's not like you, you know, have to get it, but we're working on getting out like two, three more, two more, issues of the ballad of Al Snowhead and then another like four or five of the adventures up and we'll, you know, that's when we're going to release them out into distributors and stuff when we have enough, because in the comic book world, you can't just release one. They got to know that you've got several already in the, yeah. in the line so that they yeah, can, yeah. you know, uh, build an audience. So, yeah, I mean, the great thing about the concept, the fact that it all takes place in, you know, in, in your head is the possibility that and anything's possible. Actually... Yeah. Yeah. Anything's yeah. possible. You know, we have an outer space story that we're going to do and, you know, an underwater one that we're going to do. I mean, there's, there's no end to it because I'm completely out of my mind. You know? <laughs> I love it. So That's cool. awesome. Yeah. Um, obviously we'd be remiss not to mention uh, the fact that you are, as well as a comic book hero, you are an actual hero and so it's well documented um that you saved the life of a young child who's at risk um, of being swept out to sea so i just wanted to touch on obviously what was going through your head just at, at, at that time uh you know look i just was in the right place at the right time you know and i think um i mean i don't i believe that anybody would have done the same thing you know 
I just saw him and, and um, uh, saw him being pulled out to sea by a, a rip current. And, mm. uh, uh, you know, it was amazing to, to and terrifying to watch because I, you know, heard, he caught my attention because the little boy was yelling for help and he was paddling trying to make it back to shore and it was as if a rope had been tied to his ankle and was just pulling him out i mean and he was picking up speed and um i kind of looked around and nobody was moving and i was quite a ways away and i just took off kind of running and half swimming through the water and uh you know thank god i mean i caught him i mean i literally caught him by the wrist um because I knew if I if I hadn't caught him at that point, I mean he was he was gone. He was mm -hmm. going to be uh, well past where anybody could have got got to him, you know. And uh, um, you know I uh, grabbed him and pulled him to me, and 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 as I did, you know, the rip current caught me, and a wave came over top of us, and I I just I know at that moment and. Because, you know, earlier, I, th I don't forget how long it's go, but, you know, Shad Gaspard had passed away the same way, uh, yeah. saving his son, you know, and I thought for sure we were both, at that moment, I thought we were both going to get swept out. But, you know, thank God I dug my feet in and was able to push forward and out of the pool of the rip current. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, I was able to pass him off to um, the uh, uh, lifeguard and, you uh, and get him to shore and, and uh he was okay so you know we both made it out all right but it got a little dicey for a second my, oh, my, my butthole, my butthole <laughs> pinched shut for a brief moment that's for sure wow well no, it's, it's an absolutely like obviously not a situation anyone wants to find themselves in but an absolutely amazing story i think both carl and i are parents and it, it sort of gets you when you hear something like that and, you know absolutely amazing uh, what you did and, yeah uh, you, you know you know, anybody would have done the same thing. So it's yeah. it's nothing that special. So, um, so you've obviously uh, you've also recently partnered with um, Madcap Beard Care. Um, yes, and they uh, the purchases. Sorry, you're supporting animal rescue and stray cats. Uh, yes. sort of as as part of that. Um, so just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this new new venture, really, and. Well, yeah, they, they, you know, make hand make uh, beard care products mm. and, uh, you know, and uh, men's skin care. And uh, he uses the proceeds that uh, the profits and stuff that he derives from the sale of the products. Um, he donates to animal shelters to help with rescuing, you know, stray animals. So, you know, there, there are a lot of terrible animals that are out there living in terrible conditions and you know, mm. if there's a way that we can do anything to kind of help them you know um and, you know and, and and if i can you know use my little bit of notoriety that i still have left to help out and so be it you know I, i'm all about that you know yeah, that's awesome <laughs> and i've got you know some great uh, i don't have a beard anymore i just have the, the uh goatee now but <laughs> Um, but boy, the stuff that he gave me, you know, they sent me, it, it smells amazing. So my wife likes it. So that's why I keep wearing, I keep putting it on all the time. And I'm like, mm, maybe if I keep rubbing enough of this on me, you know, I'll get lucky. 
So, <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, I'll listen. We could talk your ear off absolutely all day. Um, but one of the last ones, um, obviously, we know how busy you are. Um, you've undergone a hell of a body transformation. Like you are looking jacked. So, um, <laughs> just wanted to just wanted to ask, like, obviously, what um, what brought on the transformation? Uh, contrary to popular belief, um, it's not because you know. I love how everybody goes, oh, you on steroids and all that. And if I was, I don't care. Like, I don't care if somebody does that. I, it doesn't mean anything to me. But what people don't understand about if they'd actually do homework on steroids, they realize all it does is allow you to recover quicker and, and more expediently. That's all it does. In order to get there, though, you have to still put in the work and you have to do it the right way. And that, for me, for a lot of years, was where I went wrong. And um, I tell people all the time, I... You know, uh, one day I Googled uh, George Hackenschmidt, who was an old, like late 1800s, uh, early 1900s professional wrestler and strongman. And uh, Great Gama, who was a uh, world-renowned uh, professional wrestler. And uh, started, I went down that rabbit hole and um, uh, started uh, um, researching because if you go and look at the pictures of these guys, they look amazing. And this is during a time where there were no such thing as steroids. Yeah. And they didn't know what even a calorie was, let alone what protein was or carbohydrates. They didn't know any of that stuff. So I was like, how did they look like that? I'm going to start training like that. And that's what I did. I started doing more functional, more compound movements, adopted the mindset that I was not any longer just training, lifting heavy weights, but that I was actually practicing, much like you would any other sport, the technique of doing it the right way. And then um, really got uh, involved in um, uh, a lot of the older techniques and development that they, they used to do and equipment. Um, I've got a, uh, a Sheena board. It's a, it's a push-up board that the old Palawani, Palawani uh, wrestlers would use to train with. Um, I haven't done bench press in God knows how many years. Um, you know, it's just not a, you know, it's great, but it's yeah. really primarily just an ego lift. You know, when are you in your life going to lay flat on your back and do this unless you're underneath your car and the jack stand falls out, you know, uh, and I started using gatas, uh, Indian maces and, and Persian clubs and, and Persian meals and jories and, and I train with those and kettlebells and, and, um, and do a lot of compound lifts, a lot of, um, you know, a lot with my legs and, and with my back. And that was one of the biggest takeaways was um you know the the main uh, there's an amazing website and i don't know if it's still up or not at the time that i found it uh it was it was called goldenageofstrongmen.com and it was it's a uk website and uh at the time you could they had the actual training manuals that some of these old wrestlers and uh indian athleticism and and you know training ideas and practices um, and techniques, and you could actually download those training manuals, you know, That's um, awesome. and, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, going through and 
reading and those training manuals and uh, those techniques and uh, adopted that style, uh, changed my diet and, and uh, you know, started uh, doing those things. And that, that is what led to that. And then I think I was a late developer, like a late bloomer, honestly, like a really late bloomer. Um, and I think as I got older and my muscle got more mature and developed more, but also I think the techniques that I used to train, like, you know, I learned, you know, the biggest takeaway was that if you worked out three days a week, you focused on, uh, your legs, your back and your hands. Those were the three components, legs, back and hands. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and if you only had two days, it was legs and back, you know, if it was only one day it's legs because, Legs are the absolute essential thing that will take you to transforming your body. In fact, I had a conversation with a, a uh, he's a strength coach for, he was the Olympic volleyball team's strength coach in China. Uh, and he was from America. And he said that they, you know, here in the United States, a university, they, they had uh, done a study. They took three groups of people and they, took group, they, I think it was in like 90 day period of time. And they took a group A and group A was to only train their upper body intensely, but train their upper body. Group no. B was to train only the lower body. And then group C was to train both their upper and their lower body. And what they found after the 90 days was that group A had a minimal amount of muscle gain and fat loss from head to toe. Uh, group C, the group that worked both upper and lower body had a slightly more about a muscle mass increase and fat loss than group A that just worked their upper body. But the one that had the most from head to toe muscle mass increase and uh, fat loss was the group that worked their lower body exclusively intensely. So, you know, um, the more I adopted those principles, the more it allowed me to develop. So. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It shows you it's not always what you expect. Do you, you think we can both would be the, uh, the key mm-hmm. one, wouldn't you? But, uh, Definitely yeah, don't skip yeah. leg day. Don't skip leg day. <laughs> don't skip leg day and, and don't, don't just do it once a week, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, pursue it and, and do it. And if you want to be a wrestler, train to be a wrestler. Don't, don't train to be a bodybuilder. That's a different style. My wife was a competitive bodybuilder. And the way that she trains is completely different than the way I train. Completely. You know, she's going for, you know, where she's, she's chiseling, shaping, molding, and I'm, I'm going for, you know, something completely different. So, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, so obviously as I say, you're, you're incredibly busy, so we'll let you go shortly. But uh, lastly, I just thought I'd ask if, um, if you could sort of let everyone, uh, all the viewers or listeners uh, know how they can sort of keep up to date with, with everything you're doing in terms of social medias or, or projects you've got going on. Sure. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to follow me on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, I think that's it. Uh, you can go at the real Al Snow because there were some fakes and uh, that was before I was verified. And even if you do fake me now, I'm just going to send a message to you and go like aim the bar higher. I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> um, if you want to follow me on Facebook, you can go to the Al, go to Al Snow or my fan page, which is the real Al Snow as well on Facebook. And um, if you're interested in OBW, uh, I know in the UK, you can watch it on Fight. Um, mm-hmm. We do live weekly television every Thursday night from 
7 to 9 p.m. live on Fight, but you can always catch the replay um, on Fight anytime you want in the UK. And uh, if you have interest in OVW, you can go to ovwrestling.com. If you're interested in OVW, in any uh, the academy, um, our training school here in OVW is the only actually accredited by a state office of proprietary education as an actual trade school for professional wrestling, sports, entertainment, and broadcasting in the world. Um, you can go to ovwacademy.com for more information about that as well. And if you want to check out my uh, book that I wrote, it's on amazon.com and it's self-help uh, life lessons from the bizarre career of uh, professional wrestling in Al Snow. So awesome. Um, be sure to check that out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Genuinely, we massively appreciate you taking the time. We know how busy you are. So um, thanks again. Uh, thank you guys very much. I really do appreciate it. I wish you nothing but the best of luck.